Hello and welcome to What Comes Next, a show about the mind-blowing technologies that will shape your future. I'm Kwaku Akamensa. I'm Amy Dickens. And I'm Rob Cup. Amy and Rob, how are you guys doing? I'm, I'm really good. I'm, I'm really into this episode tonight. Yeah, I'm doing really well, mate. How are you? I am not bad at all, thank you. I'm not bad at all. Very much looking forward to um, today's episode. I'd like to set the scene for our listeners. The world is poised at an important moment in history. In the midst of increasing civil unrest, a global pandemic, and facing down a recession to rival any in recent memory. On November 3rd, Democratic candidate Joe Biden and incumbent US President Donald Trump will compete for the title of the leader of the free world. Trump came to power in 2016 in an election plagued by fake news and misinformation on a scale that we'd never seen before. Fast forward four years, and where are we today? What are the tactics that are being deployed by media companies and covert operatives? Who is influencing the volatile political landscape, and what do they stand to gain? Which new online tools are being weaponized to sway public opinion? And how can we protect ourselves in an age which is quickly becoming defined by misinformation? To find out, in this US election special of What Comes Next, we're speaking to two really exciting guests. Our first guest is Lyric Jane. He's the founder and CEO of Logically, a company operating at the cutting edge of AI communications analysis, fact-checking news stories, and researching the rapidly evolving world of social media communication. Some listeners might remember him from episode 26, where he gave us a breakdown of Logically's platform and its importance in the current climate of online communication. I definitely recommend that to anybody who's particularly interested in the topic. But right now, let's get into the What Comes Next 2020 US election special with Lyric Jane. So, you know, back in episode 26, we spoke to you about the spread of fake news and misinformation. We spoke to you about how attempts have been made to influence the 2016 election. I'd be really interested to understand just a bit of a summary of what you saw back in 2016 and what impact you thought that had and who, who was behind the influence as well. 2016 was really strange because it seemingly came out of nowhere. The, the whole world of kind of anti-misinfo, anti-disinformation is is nowhere close to... It, 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 it was very fragile back then. And it, it's some very obvious, very large campaigns that were perpetrated over the 2016 cycle, both during the primaries as well as the general election. Behind some of them, there was a lot of domestic players uh, involved, kind of politically motivated actors and various agencies uh, they use. But interestingly enough, uh, they, the the volume of activity by those domestic actors was, was somewhat dwarfed by one notable foreign player, Russia in particular. Uh, it seems to have developed a lot of capabilities around really targeted messaging on Facebook uh, with, with all kinds of content, textual content, news, uh, supposed research, memes, everything to, to target it to uh, communities to try and either stop people or, or, or discourage people from voting or uh, discourage people from voting uh, for uh, certain parties. And uh, overwhelmingly, this was targeted on the swing states, on, on the key battleground states. And it's, 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 it's still uncertain how many votes it switched, but there's estimates uh, that, that a few billion impressions uh, were served by those uh, foreign originating campaigns during the 2016 cycle. 
Uh, I can imagine that given the chaos and secrecy allowed by uh, social media platforms, it is quite hard to track the sources of uh, misinformation. What makes you think it is Russia and China? Um, so it, back in 2016, it's not just work that we've done, the work that a lot of organizations have done collectively and, and independently that comes to the same conclusions. In 2016, it was overwhelmingly Russia. There was little to no uh, Chinese and Iranian involvement. Um, it, it was mainly Russia, both through their media arm, uh, kind of RT, Sputnik, and and, and those media empires, uh, as well as uh, through the Internet Research Agency, uh, through which they created loads of impersonation accounts and sock puppet accounts to promote uh, already prevalent domestic narratives or to conduct what we call destructive messaging. So this is where they support and amplify both sides of a particularly shall we say, volatile debate, just in a, it, 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 with, with the purpose of trying to say some kind of division. Those kind of correlations are usually made based on uh, IP addresses or based on how closely those accounts are linked to known Russian assets. Be it, those could be infrastructure assets, uh, again, IP addresses, servers, et cetera, or uh, kind of physical, kind of uh, organizational assets like, like their various media companies. So moving on to the current day. So we're literally a few days away from the 2020 US election. Biden versus, unfortunately, President Donald Trump. A surreal statement to say, still in my head. What are you seeing this time around? And how have the tactics changed since 2016? It's very different. To some extent, the space has matured. Uh, kind of the defenses against uh, the very obvious information operations uh, have, have come in now. Uh, at least on all the major platforms, especially, say, Facebook, for example. Um, it seems like a lot of the foreign actors are taking are playing a very different role at this time. They're not as aggressive in outright producing content through all their human farms. Uh, they're, they're more interested in monitoring certain narratives and amplifying it when it suits them. What we're seeing outside of nation state activity is a lot of domestic activity from fringe groups that have been embedded in America uh, for a long, long time and fringe groups that have particularly gained traction over the last year or so. And the biggest one of them would be QAnon. It's those communities that are particularly interesting because there's a these are kind of domestically originated narratives, most of them very unreliable and uh, factually kind of demonstrably incorrect, but it, it, they're finding it very easy to recruit more people into, into these conspiracies uh, and, and leverage a load of off mainstream platform networks, kind of 4chans, 8chans, and, and even Reddit to a certain extent to try and amplify their message. And when we see some of the, the messaging in these communities try and break out of their their small bubbles into the general public, that's when occasionally there's a degree of uh, nation state activity to support them. So it's, 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 it's a very complex dynamic where it appears as though there's these domestic uh, conspiracy cells uh, that are set up to spread narratives that would undermine voter confidence uh, and uh, people's confidence in the electoral process which would kind of suppress the vote uh, on election day and in the days leading up to election day. 
but it's it's also being amplified by weird platform dynamics as well as uh, a degree of amplification from bots from foreign countries. Okay, so, and um, the interference that you've seen online, does it appear to be pointing people towards one direction in their voting preferences? So pointing people towards voting Republican or perhaps Democrat? Not so much this year. Uh, this year it appears to be more don't vote or it isn't safe to vote. And it's those kind of narratives. There is some around uh, the deep state and that kind of is very one-sided, but it, it's kind of very anti-so-called deep state. Uh, and it's amplifying a load of conspiracies around how the Democrats are going to use the deep state to hijack the election. So those are the only kinds of narratives that are overtly partisan, that have a great deal of foreign uh, influence uh, on them. But the, the rest of the foreign interference is very much uh, election day related, mail-in ballot related, and generally amplifying divisions in already quite tense geographical locations. So kind of there's two or three types of threats that we're um, most concerned about. Kind of in, in the days up to election day, we've already seen a load of instances of uh, kind of fake COVID outbreaks at polling stations, uh, polling stations being destroyed, even old images of uh, kind of polling stations and mock polling stations being destroyed, uh, going viral as well, being put into memes and, and shared widely to distort the context around an actual event that's happened, amplifying the statistics around how many votes might be affected by actual real world kind of security crises or security events that happen because because of attempted vandalization of, of, of polling stations. But the, the, the biggest concern that we have is more on election day, uh, as well as the, the days and weeks following the, the election. Uh, the, there have been a lot of groups that have been organizing online under the kind of poll watching banner to try and quote unquote, enforce the law on, on election day. There's big undertones that these will be individuals who'll carry weapons to polling stations and just watch those polling stations to make sure that things are happening in accordance to, to the way they want them uh, to happen. So there, there's a load of worrying signs there. The biggest uh, suppression threat, in addition to the, the intimidation, uh, is, is likely to be around COVID and COVID precautions and selectively targeting certain audiences in certain locations to say, um, hey, there's a PPE shortage at a location or a location has been moved due to a COVID outbreak uh, or, or, or the days or the pre or process has somewhat uh, materially changed as a result of COVID. Again, that's something that's fairly believable, that, and that's what makes it particularly dangerous, because people will believe it, and it, it'll, it'll stop them from going out there and, and voting. And the, the third one uh, is, is probably the one that's more widely talked about right now in, in American media, and that's about regardless of who wins, uh, it's unlikely that we will know who the president is uh, on, on, on election night itself, or even the day after the election, and it's unlikely that uh, whoever the losing side is, is going to accept the result, uh, again, regardless of who uh, And that could lead to some pretty messy outcomes. Yes. So just to kind of distill that down, it sounds like many, many different ways of sowing the seeds of disengagement in the voting process amongst voters or potential voters that are very, very politically motivated. So, you know, these are people who are going to be emotional about um, what they're seeing on their screens. 
uh, about the information that they're receiving, but the information is being designed to make them disengage. So to either not turn up to a voting station or to uh, not believe the outcome of, uh, of an election. And that unrest could be what we see unfolding in the days and weeks following the election. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's terrifying, especially the, the piece that you mentioned about um, people arming themselves to, um, to enforce the law. Absolutely. And again, uh, even the narrative around why people are arming up fits right in with, uh, with, with the constitutional narrative, which is, hey, people need, need arms in case the government ever turns tyrannical. And that fits right in with, with the whole deep state narrative that's being manufactured around how this is going to be stolen from uh, under the president's nose. It's very complementary because it, it goes, it, it, it pairs that audience that uh, uh, kind of is 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 very pro um, Second Amendment um, and uh, an audience that feels very skeptical about things like uh, the bureaucracy of DC and and the, the so called uh, deep state and it's yeah it, it it's certainly something that that's going to have some um, consequences throughout uh, the the weeks after the election but it's uh, now a kind of a process of trying to contain and mitigate that risk as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. And I, it's really important what you mentioned um, about COVID um, and and the way that that's kind of thrown an absolute curveball into the mix um, throughout the year. What you're talking about is the you know, the perfect storm where people are isolated from each other to discuss things properly, uh, where they've got more time on their hands to be just absorbing social media feeds, when fear that strikes us at the family level, you know, this really kind of like primal um, fear and like instinctual level of distrust is going on as well. All of these things have been going on for a prolonged period. And at a point in time where people aren't sure what news sources to trust, what motivations their politicians might have, it's all of these things compounding upon one another. And now, you know, causing this absolute tinderbox that you're telling us that um, that certain people are, are manipulating to, to to cause civil unrest. It's it's really scary stuff. It kind of it feels it, it feels fictional when I describe it like that. Yeah, absolutely. What's really odd uh, about this cycle is just the sheer diversity we're seeing in the tactics and methods that e even domestic actors are deploying because it, it feels like this this one is a lot more grassroots and there's a lot of people for lack of a better word are, are innovating around how they could uh, tilt the odds in favor of their candidate uh so it's, it's all crazy things from figuring out how they could get away with voting multiple times and advertising that quite publicly so other people follow the same tactics uh, to sending certain districts and certain demographics of people fake, fake ballot paper to, to vote on. Some of this is kind of outright illegal. It's not just kind of in violation of platform policy. It's, it's kind of in violation of federal law and state law. So people seem to have just completely uh, lost their bearings and lost the plot. I, I, it's almost like I find it hard to believe that we're so um, effectively manipulated, particularly with, you know, we're talking about, um, we're talking about voters, we're talking about people 
kind of as if we're, we're all, and I, you know, I count myself within this as well. You know, even though we're doing a podcast about this, I'm sure that I've looked at some fake news today that I've probably believed, right? But the thing is that surely our understanding of how um, different actors are trying to influence our opinion, isn't that making us more resilient to these kinds of threats? No, I think there's, there is some truth to that. And even, even when we work with our partners, that's a very potent countermeasure that we sometimes try and deploy. Like not just telling people, hey, this is right and this is wrong, or this is at the moment uncertain. Especially in those uncertain cases, what's more effective is saying, hey, this is something that ex- explicitly Russia wants you to believe, or this particular politically motivated or financially motivated group wants you to believe. So bringing the intent behind why certain things might be viewable by people, uh, might be visible to people, is a really effective countermeasure. But it, it also kind of has a backfire effect because it, again, works to grow their in, their, their distrust of everything that they see online. So there's this fine grain, of, there's this trade-off that needs to be made around how people consume information online. There has to be a degree of skepticism but there has to be some things you just trust based on either how you have some affinity to those organizations or just based on the historic credibility, accuracy and and place in the world of certain institutions. Um, or you could completely take the, a, a very maverick contrarian position and and uh, trust uh, every, every odd view and distrust the mainstream view. And it's it's that trade-off between knowing what to trust and being skeptical of certain information that is often skewed when things like this come to light because it completely changes uh, how people interact with information, especially if, if it is something that they start looking at very deeply. There, there is a backfire effect that I think a few uh, psychologists have worked on uh, to, to, to demonstrate uh, that, that can be quite potent. But overall, an awareness of this being a being a tactic, uh, mm-hmm. of this being uh, something that's prevalent in the world, can can only lead to uh, people becoming more resilient. Uh, but there, there will be people in fringe groups, etc., who in, in in fact get even more radicalized uh, because of, of this institutional distrust that knowing some of these facts is uh, kind of kind of helps promote. So it's 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 understanding how we then try and go about de-radicalizing these now fairly large sections of the population. So for example, QAnon, there's recent estimates per there following at something like 25 million. And this is a completely wacky conspiracy around how everyone in the world who's anyone is a pedophile and how everyone in the Democratic Party is is keeping kids underground. I mean, it's it's 20 something, 25 million people. And it's not just the US, it's, it's around the world now, even, even the UK, Germany, Japan. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, a follow, it's something that's getting a lot of following everywhere in the world. And again, taking a slight tangent from COVID, when it, when it came to COVID-19, it felt like almost every conspiracy around COVID-19, it had some kind of either, either, either very central affiliation or or, or, or or a tangential affiliation with QAnon. And I've, almost every conspiracy around COVID had some kind of QAnon link, either in terms of its origin or in terms of how 
uh, that conspiracy went uh, mainstream. Um, so it's it's those these kind of now domestic factions that have developed as a as a result of this distrust of existing institutions that doesn't have an easy fix. That is going to need um, a lot of work. Uh, a lot of trust needs to be earned back. Mm. I mean, it, it's so interesting. You know, it, it does kind of paint quite a bleak picture. Um, but not least because, you know, we don't hear about, we don't hear a lot about the other side of the coin, which is quite a lot of the governments that are trying to stop their uh, population from being influenced by external factors are trying to influence their own populace in other ways. You know, they're using these same tactics for um, either trying to influence their own populace or even in some cases, you know, interfering with overseas elections. Um, I'd be really interested to understand if you've seen any of that happening. Is that something that uh, logically has uh, has looked for at all, the actual use of, you know, UK and US government intervention in overseas elections and politics? Uh, yeah, we, we definitely have. Uh, but it, it mainly, I, I think it uses a lot of similar methods that it's able to use more reliable and solid narratives so i think there's there's a different there, there, there is a similarity when it comes to the methods and tactics that are used but from what we've seen it, it usually tends to be to, to try and promote reliable narratives and and tends to be defensive in nature uh, rather than outright offensive Mm, mm. There's there's a lot to think about in that last little um, segment. Um, I, I suppose you know what what one person might call defense of uh, their principles is probably attack on somebody else's. Um, and I wonder, I, I wonder how that actually does play out when um, you know when a country like the US is is uh, adopting some of these tactics overseas. But it's definitely interesting to hear. I wonder what types of analysis has, has logically been undertaking um, in the run up to, to the US election. So, you, you know, you've touched on lots of different areas of, um, of online content and how that's being interfered with. What types of analysis have kind of uh, have your team been working on? Maybe you could give us a couple of examples um, over the last couple of months. Uh, we've been we've been very very busy <laughs> i can only imagine <laughs> <laughs> on on all fronts uh so uh when it comes to our consumer app um we've been live fact checking the presidential debates oh cool yeah we we had a great response on the on the app uh, in the us both for the first and second uh presidential debates and kind of a fairly good response to the vp debate as well and we live check the uh, entire debates and uh, kind of dozens of fact checks uh, were, were, were published during the debate for all the debates, and uh, with with, with uh, there being, I think, on average a twenty minute gap between new fact checks conducted and a, a kind of a, a a minute to thirty second gap for automated fact checks. So we were able to uh, stream uh, the debates on 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 the Logically app, and and then fact check automatically within thirty seconds to to a minute, and manually within within twenty minutes, and show them as pop-ups uh, on top of the live stream so that was really exciting for us it's something that uh again commercially isn't very attractive for us to do but it, it's 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 really fun and it's something that we wanted to do for a, for a very very long time and is um where we want to go with our with our fact-checking capabilities it's to act at scale but it acts as quickly as possible so that uh yes we we, we can impact these big events that uh, millions of people watch uh, but also when it comes to 
newly emerging stories and newly emerging claims, we're able to find ways of uh, nipping them in the bud or responding to them uh, kind of within within that half an hour window and we we found a load of evidence that 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 seems to be the sweet spot also which there's there's a load, load of diminishing returns uh it, it feels like after half an hour it's, it's almost too late to to respond with a with a with a fact check because the story's already gone viral it certainly sounds like it's been you know just an absolutely crazy few months for you guys but you know to to speak specifically on the um the debates i mean that is a pretty incredible piece of functionality that you're giving to everybody you know the ability to live fact check a debate and um and hopefully you know really really influence uh what people are consuming there i know that you mentioned that you know, there are lots of influencers that are kind of attacking via SMS and through other um, types of media. But let's not forget that there are a lot of people that will tune into those live debates, and they'll make their voting decision based on those debates, right? It's still um, a massive swathe of the population that's going to do that. I have to ask, if you are fact checking all of those uh, candidates, who is the biggest bullshitter? um i think uh they've both got a lot of things wrong but overall yeah i wouldn't be a surprise i think trump definitely had had more false statements that he made and false claims that he made during uh the debate oh one thing that we're doing that my that that our that our editorial team would kill me if i didn't mention would be QAnon. uh so we've been doing an immense amount of work around investigating QAnon both in the US and uh, around around the world. And in September, we were able to release a report around one QAnon aggregator. Uh, so this was a, a website that was pulling together a lot of these drops that Q was making on Aitken, which is a really terrible uh, place on the internet, surrounded by all kinds of content that most people wouldn't want to see. Uh, but on this aggregator site, he, uh, he was making it nice and pretty with a nice UI uh, and uh, interactive so that average Joes would would hopefully engage with it. And this this is a site that started receiving about 10 million visits every month from April through September. Um, so we were able to identify who the operator was. It wasn't some secretive military intelligence dude. Uh, it was a banker who, uh, well, not a banker, an information security analyst who uh, worked for a bank uh, who's, who's, uh, who since closed up his website and yeah it's we've we've dropped a few more uh, pieces on on those aggregators to try and m- make some real world impact to try and um if, if not uh reduce uh the spread of QAnon, at least at least limit uh, the rate at which it's it's growing around the world and we have a few other investigations that are coming out very soon that speak to some 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 very substantial inaccuracies around the origin story of, of q and yeah, and, and and some key influences in 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 that world. So uh, on, on on top of everything, election uh, QAnon has has, uh, which is is kind of an untold secret. They're, they're playing an incredible role in this election. Whether we have uh, peop- candidates for Congress who are um, outright Q supporters, uh, and and wow, it uh, yeah, hopefully another uh, frontier uh, through which we're we're able to make some good impact in the world. Thank you very much to Lyric for coming on. By the way, if you want to find out more about Logically and the work that they're involved in, you can head to logically.ai and their app is now available on Android or iPhone. 
I can't believe that there are 25 million people um, involved in QAnon and that it's got such global reach. That is just crazy to me. Also terrifying that there is that amount of people who have just bought into this narrative. It's insane. Absolutely. Yeah, it's terrifying the people who bought into it, but also just that America has become the center for fake news kind of content production, right? It's no longer foreign agents. It's actually in the US, which I imagine is going to be much harder to, to resolve as a sort of social problem. Absolutely. And one of the most scary things that I thought Lyric mentioned was this idea of, or, or this trend now that, that we're seeing, of domestic actors that are thinking about arming themselves in the States and protecting what they consider to be uh, their patriotic rights, you know, potentially even going to voting booths and doing that. It's, it's really, really scary stuff. And I think what we have to be aware of um, in the context of mass communication, if people continue to stoke the flames um, underneath people's fears like this, then people will start reacting to one another differently in the real world. It's going to have awful consequences. Uh, and we really need to be aware of that and the way that it's going to uh, change our, our relationship with mass communication. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and that brings us really nicely to our next guest. I spoke to Marcus Funk, Associate Professor of Mass Communication at Sam Houston State University, about how social media, and particularly fake news, is affecting the way America engages with politics. All right. Welcome, Marcus. And thank you so much for coming on What Comes Next. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, so I'm going to jump right in. What we've just heard from our conversation with Lyric Jane from Logically is that Twitter and Facebook are continuing to have a negative impact with citizens' engagement with politics, um, in the U.S. particularly, but also around the world. So we heard that in 2016, misinformation was being created and spread through external actors, namely Russia. Um, and now in 2020, we're kind of seeing a shift in tactics to internal players creating and spreading the fake news. So I'm wondering if you could maybe just give us a little bit of an insight into how social media and digital communication has changed political discourse in America. Well, I think it's probably too early to say definitively how much foreign investment or foreign interaction has has corroded our social media ecosystem. My bet is we're going to find more and more of it from Russia and other hostile actors as time goes on. But we've certainly got domestic chaos as well as imported chaos. And Facebook and YouTube and even Google to a degree are in a weird bind because they've got financial incentive to collect as much money from as many different parties as they can. And they still subscribe for the most part to a 2002-2004 era mindset of we're just a platform, we're not a publisher. And we're not accountable or liable for any of the content on our platform, quote unquote. So there's still both a philosophical and financial incentive for them to wave through a whole lot of erroneous information or garbage advertising or legitimate disinformation. And on, on top of that, even if there were a, a clear will and a clear resolve to mitigate or reduce the amount of disinformation on these platforms. And I think to a degree there is and to a degree there isn't. Even with the best faith approach in the world, that's still a monumental task. It's like whack-a-mole just because there's so much out there and these platforms are so enormous. And you mentioned other countries. One of the benefits in the United States 
it's easier to moderate this content in English, but there are developing countries around the world that have the same issue in a language that not that many people in California speak, which makes it even more difficult to crack down on this disinformation and this toxicity. It was really interesting what you mentioned about languages there, because I know I, I was watching a, um, I think it was like an Instagram live with uh, with AOC, <laughs> to use her, her common name. And she, and she was saying that there's been quite a spread of misinformation in the Spanish communities as well, just particularly because it's harder to tackle, because a lot of the technology isn't really designed uh, to sort of tackle this misinformation in Spanish. So there's two elements to this. There's there's only so much you can automate when it comes down to cracking down on disinformation and fake news and garbage advertising, that sort of thing. On some level, you can program it. Algorithms can do some of the work. But at the end of the day, someone is either going to be programming that algorithm or sitting at a computer watching the horrible image or the horrible video and deciding to wave it through or not. And the extra languages complicate that. The sheer volume of content complicates that quite a bit. And the way I think about this generally, I think of disinformation and fake news as a vine. And on the above ground, we see that disinformation and fake news have grown quite a bit through social media and through digital media platforms, almost like somebody put a trellis or a wall right next to the vine so it could really scramble up and really get some, some height and get some force behind it. And we can do things digitally. We can crack down on disinformation through algorithms or through technology. We can deplatform hostile actors and we can require more transparency. To my mind, that's akin to taking a machete to the vine. That's important and that helps. Facebook have made some big steps lately trying to deplatform QAnon, trying to ban QAnon from the platform, and a few other steps like that. I think on some level, there's a good faith effort to clean up and restore the health of this digital ecosystem. On the other hand, disinformation is not new. And a lot of these conspiracies and a lot of these hostile actors have been circulating for decades, if not centuries. The roots of QAnon go at least a century back, in some cases even farther. To my mind, that's like the roots of the vine. You can purge as many ads or as many accounts from Facebook as you want. That's not going to affect that root system. Mm. That's very interesting. And I definitely want to get on to that a little bit later when we talk about kind of solutions to this problem. But you mentioned QAnon, and I think that that would be quite an interesting thing to focus on right now, because one of the things that Lyric mentioned in his interview yesterday is that the data they're seeing um, for this election is it seems to be pointing towards misinformation being spread much more from internal groups such as QAnon. It, they're sort of like, yeah, he basically pointed out they're gaining quite a lot of traction. The, the misinformation is being spread much farther and much more widely than it was in previous cycles. Uh, why do you think that fringe groups like QAnon and others are finding it so easy to recruit people into believing their particular narrative? Well, I think the biggest misconception people have about QAnon is that it's a recent phenomenon. The tenets of that hateful conspiracy go back at least a century, if not further. These are very ancient ideas, very old, bigoted stereotypes. And that's part of the reason they're able to circulate, because they've done it before. 
And the content itself has proven over the years to be very viral, to be persuasive to people who are inclined to believe conspiracy or inclined to have racist feelings to begin with. It's mm -hmm. not a new creation particularly tailored for the social media world. It's very much old content that is finding a new home in the digital realm. So it's more it's more the content or the ideas have existed. They they're nothing new, but the technology that we have now has made it possible for it to spread like wildfire. It's very much helped it circulate and it's very much helped it find a new audience. And it's also been repackaged and repurposed in some mm. relatively friendly ways. When you see a meme about save the children with some ambiguous statistics, everybody everyone wants to save children. You know, who doesn't like kids? Who doesn't want to oppose pedophilia? And so they give you just this small, ambiguous lead with a ton of emotional content, but no real data or details. And people circulate that. They just hit share and they hit like without thinking about it. And mm. that has helped this really circulate and really grow in a way that is, if not completely unprecedented, certainly relatively new. So, Marcus, how does the current... Uh, I guess, evolution of QAnon, which is linked to, um, you know, trafficking of children, pedophilia, how does that compare to previous iterations of the organization and the thoughts that they were spreading before? So it depends on how much detail you go into. And the mainstream media conversation typically stops at it's a malignant conspiracy that believes that a satanic cabal of pedophiles are running the deep state and the government and the media, and they're all opposed to President Trump. It's actually deeper than that. It plays on much older stereotypes and bigotries of blood libel and cannibalism and drinking the blood of children. Details that were in hateful books like the Protocols of, Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was horrifying racist propaganda more than 100 years ago. In many ways, these are the same bigotries and the same conspiracies that motivated the Holocaust and pogroms in other countries before uh, Nazi Germany arose. The content is much older than we think. And we do it a disservice by just stopping at, oh, well, it's a deep, it's a conspiracy about the deep state. Ha ha ha. Like those guys are crazy. Like, yes, it is malignant. Yes, it is divorced from reality. Also, yes, it's deeply racist and it's much older than we realize. And if we trivialize it or if we write it off as a punchline, then we ignore those racist roots. And Mm. Think of the typical person who sees a, a Facebook meme about save the children and they share it because they think, oh, well, I, I support ending pedophilia and I support prosecuting pedophiles. Typical broad statements that everyone would agree with. Well, if you try to tell them there is no deep state conspiracy, then they might rebuff you a little bit. There might be some, well, you never know. You know, they might subscribe to that conspiracy a little more. If you tell them, hey, what you're saying has tremendous overlap with literal Hitlerian propaganda, then that makes them do a double take. So I think one of the things we touched on slightly earlier was the pace that information is able to to spread and how how widely it can spread as well. Um, so with new forms of communication that are appearing all the time, and I, I'm thinking particularly of TikTok right now, uh, it was created in 2016. It's, it's a, it wasn't really a part of the previous election, um, but has blown up ever since. So what is the challenge going forward in terms of 
um, I guess, ensuring that the communication that we receive and that we send is factual and accurate um, when there are new things cropping up all the time that maybe don't really have uh, any policies or procedures in place for monitoring that. So I'm actually a big fan of TikTok. My wife loves it. She'll start scrolling and I'll start watching TV. And by the end of, you know, an hour, I'm leaning over on the couch and I'm just watching the videos go by. <laughs> They're incredibly addictive. I think from a technological level, it's really, really difficult to ensure the authenticity and the veracity of information on a platform. You know, Google and Facebook and YouTube haven't always had the best faith approach to tackling disinformation. But even if they did and when they have, it's a monumental task. It's extremely difficult just because of the volume of the platform and the size, the sheer number of users. The good news, especially from a media consumption standpoint, is that Google is a superpower. Disinformation is not complicated. It's intended to pull on your heartstrings and step on your nerves. It's not intended to be logically or rationally persuasive. It's not based on data. It's not based on comprehensive arguments. It's literally not rocket science. It's trying to either upset you or enrage you to the point that you just spasm share and spread the conspiracy or spread the false claim. So taking a deep breath, counting to 10, and literally Googling any of the proper nouns in the claim you see, 99 times out of 100, that's enough. And you can see what else has this source said and who else has talked about this same topic. We have more information at our fingertips than at any time in human history. The irony is that makes it much easier to spread bogus conspiracies and disinformation, but it also empowers us to verify accurate information and falsify disinformation and bogus information. It is so easy. It only takes a moment. The problem is socially, behaviorally, we just don't take that time. We figure, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds legit. That sounds right. So I'm just going to share it. Or I'm going to think about that. Or the famous, I'm just putting this out there and you can make your own conclusions. Well, you can make your own conclusions, but you're not entitled to your own facts. <laughs> to kind of bring this conversation to a close, well, you, you touched a little bit on this earlier, um, how technology is one solution to battling this kind of uh, war of misinformation. Um, but you also did touch on other solutions, um, such as taking a pause for 10 seconds to, to, to Google the accuracy of something. So what are things that every single one of us listening can be doing to kind of like take our own responsibility for this? Um, is it just Googling? Is there other stuff that we can be doing? What are some other solutions? One of the big root problems here is political polarization. And social media in many ways exacerbates that issue and magnifies that issue, but it's a organic, you know, IRL issue as well. And one of the best things we can do is back away from that dramatic political polarization. That's more challenging during the COVID-19 pandemic than it would be in a normal year. But you should have people in your social circle, both personally and digitally, who do have disagreeing views with you. 
And you should be able to have rational, reasonable conversations with them about those disagreements. And that can feel very challenging. That can be very difficult given the the dramatic gulf between even your typical Democrat and your typical Republican or your typical Labor Party member and your typical Conservative Party member. But it's such a important task to do because that's that's the root cause here in many ways. People need to be willing to have conversations and find practical ways to reduce political polarization. They need to be willing to Google things and take a breath, and they need to vote. Thank you, Marcus, for coming on the podcast. Kwaku, Rob, I hope that made you a little more optimistic about the future of fake news. That was amazing. It's so useful to have an academic on that can give so much more context to to the topic we're talking about here. One of the things that I took away from that is the fact that these are repeatable trends. These are repeatable propaganda stories that have that have gone on for, he said, you know, over a hundred years in some cases. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was that was fascinating. Uh, and I just want to uh, give a shout actually to another podcast. So Re- Reply All, fantastic sort of tech culture podcast. Uh, episode 166, Country of Liars. They talk all about kind of who Q is and the kind of the history of Q. So if anyone was interested in kind of learning more about Q on, QAnon in its kind of current form, definitely check that out. Um, something I really liked that Marcus mentioned was kind of how you diffuse radical polarization. And I think that one, he's absolutely right. We need to kind of talk to each other uh, it kind of in the real world, in kind of normal kind of human ways, not on social media. But I do believe that, you know, technology and social platforms, um, they're meant to bring us close together. That's the, the the nature of social media. It's just the way they've been engineered has driven us further apart. The, the, the problem is technological. And I think that the solution can be technological too. I think that's something we really should kind of campaign for. Yeah, definitely. And I, I really liked the points he made about the social changes that can be made too. So, and behavioral changes as well, like taking an instant to Google something or fact check something for yourself before you share it. Um, maybe read an article before you retweet it. And, and, you know, one of the biggest takeaways I took from that is to go and vote and actually participate because that also helps bridge the divide. Um, surround yourself with people who think differently to you. you know, these are really practical solutions. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Comes Next. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Don't forget to check the show notes for more information about what we've discussed on the show and where to find us online. Thank you again and see you next time.